This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. What in the name of God? What did he do to make this house so evil? Murder, vampirism, cannibalism, drug addiction, alcoholism, sadism, mutilation. How did it end? If it had ended, we would not be here. Although the story discussed within this podcast is fictitious, the witty banter involving psychic phenomena is not only clever, it could well be hilarious. Signed, Tom Corbett, clairvoyant and podcast consultant to European royalty. Professor Corbett will be just one member of the faculty this fall at Scare University or as we like to call it, scare you. I'm Eric Winnick. And I'm Bradford Lorick. And I'm leaving my ectoplasm in the jar. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because tonight, two of us are going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And these fellas will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet as assigned by a true horror aficionado you sir joining us today to discuss the 1973 film the legend of hell house all the way from brooklyn new york is the one and only christopher shin hello chris hey guys uh for those of you who are not aware and shame shame on you Chris is a playwright and screenwriter whose plays include Four, Other People, Where Do We Live, Dying City, Now or Later, The Narcissist, Teddy Ferrara, An Opening in Time, Picked, The Coming World, and Against. Chris's plays have been produced all over the world, off-Broadway and on-Broadway, where his adaptation of Hedda Gabler premiered in 2009, featuring one Mary Louise Parker. Who? Exactly. Chris is also a Pulitzer Prize nominee, and his awards and grants include an Obie Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship in Playwriting, a grant from the NEA TCG Residency Program, and hot off the press, people, he was just named a 2023 McDowell Fellow. 
but of course, to us, Chris is best known as the author of two plays near and dear to our hearts, What Didn't Happen and On the Mountain, both of which we got to work on as little marketeers at Playwrights Horizons. The latter of which featured a few unknown actors by the names of Amy Ryan, Allison Pill, and Eben Moss Backrack. Have you heard of them, lad? No, I've never heard of them. Um, no, I mean, th- these plays were incredible. The casts were great. Um, the artwork was great. The artwork was pretty good. And uh, yeah, we had a, a blast promoting those those projects. Um, so, Chris, how the hell are you? And what else are you up to these days besides being a 2023 McDowell fellow? Um, I'm hanging in there, you know. Uh, it's been, it's been crazy times, but, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here talking horror. Uh, you know, as you were doing my introduction, I thought to myself, wait, has there been a horror movie set at an artist's residency? Has that, is there like a McDowell? I think that's just called being a fellow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a horror, (laughs) a horror in itself. But, um, yeah, I, I, I suddenly thought maybe a, there could be a writer's residency uh, horror movie. I, I feel like that genre is, is is a rich genre yet to be tapped. Woefully underdeveloped. I was going to say that it's probably like the the person who drops off your food at your cottage every day, you know, is just is up to no good and is, I don't know, worshiping a deity somewhere. Yeah. What is in that picnic basket? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, cool. So, Chris, uh, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre, and what is your favorite horror film? You know, I think I I became interested in uh, writing through horror movies. I mean, my earliest childhood memories of movies all involve scary movies. I I know for a fact somehow. I saw Scanners, or at least part of Scanners, on TV when I was like seven years old. Uh, I have a very vivid memory of uh, the you know the famous uh, exploding head, and I remember an early like a video store. I was born in 1975, so I think by the you know early mid 80s, we had a video store, and I, w- I was just drawn to the horror section, and I remember looking at the covers of. VHS tapes and being so excited and titillated. And, you know, I, I actually don't even know if I was frightened. I, I think it, there was a kind of, uh, you know, uh, erotic charge to the extent, you know, a, a, a you know, nine-year-old can, can feel an erotic <laughs> charge, but you know, it was like a, it was just exciting, you know, and transgressive. And I remember the, the uh, cover of faces of death in particular uh, really titillated me, I think because it, it essentially claimed to be showing real, real violence. And, exactly. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly. I think that was one my mother didn't didn't let me see. But <laughs> you know, in general, she was incredibly indulgent of my desire to see horror movies. So I was seeing you know pretty graphic horror from the time you know. I mean, he, he, she would even take me to stuff in the theaters. Um, so like, I remember seeing dead ringers. I was probably like 12 or 13. I think. Mm-hmm. Oh my came God. Out. So for whatever reason, my mother was just like, Oh my, you know, my, my son is very, you know, intelligent and emotionally advanced. So he can see that, see this stuff. So I, I just fell in love with horror movies. I wrote little horror stories and, um, and yeah, that's sort of where my love of cinema began. And, 
you know, uh, everything sort of flowed from that. Welcome to the club, Chris, because I also was blessed to sort of come of age around that same time uh, and also had incredibly permissive parents who let me see almost anything I wanted to see. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like I'm a better person for it. Now, of course, Bradford, you were four or five at the time, I believe. I was like three and a half the first <laughs> time that I, I was really conscious of seeing a horror film. And Chris, you know, I, I think we've, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but um, it was the first television broadcast of Friday the 13th. Um, and I think it was probably in like 1982 or early 1983, something like that. Um, maybe a little bit. Maybe it had to be like 1982, but I remember being a little kid and, you know, sitting on the couch with my mother and hearing the announcer, because there were still local station announcers then, um, who said, you know, lock your doors and close your windows. And I remember getting up off the sofa and making sure that the <laughs> door was locked and then settling in to have my little mind blown by, you know, Jason Voorhees and all the goings on at Crystal Lake. But I, I I remember too the like the vivid shock of like when when it's revealed you know who the killer is in that movie it just like I, it it blew my mind that a mother could do something like that. It was, well, I mean uh, to to say nothing of the moment when Jason emerges from the lake at the end, you know, in the in the sort of dream sequence. So, Chris, do you, do you are you able to pinpoint a, a favorite horror film or maybe one a favorite horror film of the moment? I, I definitely have a favorite. I, I think it's a pretty obvious, uh, obvious one. But to me, The Shining is is mm. the greatest horror movie, and I, I've seen it so many times. I could watch it. You know, I feel like I could watch it every month, and you know, I would still be just fully immersed in it. Uh, there's there's so much richness and mystery and psychological complexity in uh, you know in Kubrick's movies, and you know, I am um, I have a really vivid memory uh, dating a, an actor who uh, I guess I was like in my early, early twenties actor who went on to have a little bit of fame. And, um, we had a kind of intense, passionate romance. And, uh, he had told me his, uh, the, the movie that terrified him was the shining. And I think it was when we were either in the process of breaking up or after we broke up, I had this <laughs> horrible nightmare where I went to see the shining um, and the movie began and the title, the title of the movie, uh, appeared on the screen, but it was spelled the shinning. It was spelled S H I N N I N G, like my last name. And, uh, and I was like, Oh God, you know, when I woke up from that dream, I just thought that, you know, that that's it. This, this movie is linked to the deepest part of my psyche forever. Thank you, Kay Kaiser. Uh, Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of those patented, brief, spoiler-free synopses we've come to know and love? You know, I would be delighted to. Let's cue some music. Now, uh, from what I've discovered, the score of this film is uh, no longer Unavailable. available. 
Uh, so uh, we're going to lay in some uh, uh, weird electronic music uh, underneath. Some so, weird goobly electronic music. Weird gooby music. Uh, let's mm-hmm. let's cue that up right now. Okay. Shaggy, Velma, Fred, and Daphne are determined to spend the night in a haunted... Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, Eccentric billionaire Rudolf Deutsch wants someone to figure out what or who's been haunting the old Belasco mansion, the quote-unquote Mount Everest of haunted houses. Seems whomever has been haunting the joint has figured out the secret to life after death, so Deutsch enlists a team of potential rivals, physicist and sometime paranormal investigator Barrett and his wife Anne, mental medium Florence Tanner, and physical medium Ben Fisher, the sole survivor of the last time anyone attempted to exercise the old home. Almost from the jump, something's off. No one trusts each other. Science butts heads with pseudoscience. And when the actual haunting comes, no one's really in a place to discuss it. No one, that is, except Florence and Ben, who've seen enough in their time to recognize the dangers that lie within Belasco House. And by the time people start getting possessed, furniture starts a shaking, and chandeliers start a tumbling, it's too late to turn back. The team must see this through and somehow get to the bottom of what's been driving Hell Houses off the charts psychic energy. Not bad, sir. Not bad at all. It wasn't great, but it'll do. All right. So why don't you tell everyone who was responsible for the making of this film? Yes. Uh, This film was helmed by British director John Huff, whose career included television and film, uh, notably kicking off with the beloved British series, The Avengers, uh, before moving on to such theatrical fare as this film, Escape to Witch Mountain, and its much maligned sequel, Return from Witch Mountain. Uh, He also made Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, and of course, 1980s The Watcher in the Woods, which reunited Huff with his Return to Witch Mountain star, Betty Davis. Um, Happily, Huff is still with us, unlike the guy you're about to mention. Yes, Hell House was penned by the late, great Richard Matheson, author of many weird fantasy, sci-fi, and horror tales based on his own novel, Hell House. The movie features the one and only Roddy McDowell, who was a 1964 Golden Globe nominee for Cleopatra. He was the star of the OG Fright Night, and he was a frequent 1970s TV guest star as Benjamin Franklin Fisher. Gail Hunnicutt as Anne Barrett, Pamela Franklin as Florence Tanner, Clive Revel as Dr. Lionel Barrett, and the inimitable Roland Culver as Rudolf Deutsch. Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. Hell House opened in the U.S. on June 15th, 1973, having been made for the tidy sum of we don't know because that information isn't available, uh, and it wound up grossing 
We wouldn't know that either. Uh, the film is 64% fresh on the rotten tomatometer. Or as I like to call it, the tomato meter. Critical response to The Legend of Hell House was, shall we say, varied. Our guy Raj wrote in his review of another film, Burnt Offerings, that unlike Burnt Offerings, The Legend of Hell House brought out the fun in this sort of material very well. And you know, of course, Burnt Offerings was also a vehicle for later stage Betty Davis. Uh, If you didn't know that, now you do. Uh, In a review published on June 16th, 1973, the New York Times A.H. Weiler called Hell House's plot, quote, fairly standard procedure, screams, seances, flying crockery, and a part I'm not going to read as it's a spoiler, but the young, decorative Pamela Franklin as a mental medium and Gail Honeycutt as the physicist's well-endowed wife at an unusual, (laughs) titillating, Mr. Shin, another titillating (laughs) facet to the genre... (laughs) when they occasionally serve as sex objects for those dastardly ghouls. The the rampaging spirits, however, are hard to believe, and we must agree with the realistic, unflappable Clive Revel when he exclaims, It's impossible. I can't accept this. Oh, A.H., my eyes are up here, okay, guy? Uh (laughs) The Legend of Hell House was nominated for exactly no Oscars. Uh, Sadly, it lost to far less deserving fare, namely The Sting. Hell House might have been considered the horror film of 1973, had it not been overshadowed by another film that actually was nominated for Oscars, The Exorcist, Uh, as well as an absolute bumper crop of horror and horror-adjacent projects that year, including... Don't Look Now, Lisa and the Devil, Theater of Blood with Vincent Price, Scream, Blackula Scream without Vincent Price, Torso, (laughs) The Baby, Oh My God, The Baby with Ruth Roman, uh, and now the screaming starts, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, The Killing Kind, Soylent Green, Ganja and Hess, The Creeping Flesh, Messiah of Evil, The Crazies, And, of course, a little film we covered last season called The Wickerman. (laughs) So, sir, if I were to excise The Exorcist and The Wickerman from that list, uh, what would you say is your favorite horror film of 1973? (sighs) That is really tough. And, you know, I'm going to be really clear and upfront. It's not Don't Look Now, even though it probably should be. It is either Theater of Blood or The Baby. Theater of Blood is amazing. The Baby is batshit bonkers crazy. Christian, do you do you any of those uh, titles uh, sound familiar to you? Anything uh, anything ring up some memories for you? I'm afraid once you excise the two really famous movies, <laughs> most of them are uh, are unknown to me. Okay, but I, I'd have to go. You know, I'll, I'll try to do a, a re- Freudian, Freudian regression tomorrow, and uh, <laughs> if I have any 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 of those uh, VHSs come back to me, I will let you know. We can edit that into the podcast. Oh, uh, Christopher, you must check out Theater of Blood. I was going to um, say, what was your yeah. recommend? What would you recommend, Bradford, for for Chris to watch? 
I think Theater list. of Blood is totally delightful. I mean, we yeah. were talking about the Avengers before, and Emma Peel herself, Diana Rigg, uh, stars alongside Vincent Price, and um, Coral Brown, who is married to... Um, who was married to Vincent Price is also in the film. It's really delightful. It's uh, it, it's sort of about a um, maligned theater actor who decides to start taking revenge on critics. Oh, wow. <laughs> he felt killed in his career. <laughs> And now's our opportunity to get, quote, hot for teacher, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is me. Uh, But before we get started, I just want to confirm, Chris, that like me, you had not seen this film prior to the professor's assignment. I had absolutely not seen it. All right. So, uh... Prof, uh, please inform us and our listening audience why you chose this spooky serenade for the Scare You curriculum. Well, the legend of Hell House, uh, or as I like to call it, Florence and a Machine, um, you know, well, it's it's like a charming little Christmas movie. Um, and it has an uncredited appearance by Michael Goff as Emmerich Belasco, who effectively serves to pull the legend of Hell House into a lineage of Hammer and Amicus horror pictures that have kind of brought us up to the point at which this was released. Um, but this is, I think, very different from those films. And, and while it has all of the comforts of a WPIX Saturday spooker from our childhood, um, from the subject matter to the film stock, I discovered this one much later um, when I was living in Greenpoint and I plucked it from those exceptionally well-curated shelves at Photoplay, which, Eric, you recall, is the lamentably shuttered local DVD rental shop that was in Greenpoint, which Bobby Tilly and I talked about ad nauseum. Um, yes. And there is a certain kind of 1970s European chic to it, especially um, Gail Honeycutt, uh, who actually just passed away on August 31st um, as the very tightly wound and repressed Anne um, from the very first time we see her. And let me just say that my three honor roll mentions tonight should be for Gail Honeycutt's hair, her fur, and her nose, but they won't be. Um, And it's not like an aristocratic chic or half as decadent as like Daughters of Darkness, which we covered last season, Um, though uh, I I do love a no bullshit aristocrat like Rudy Deutsch, whose obsession with knowing what comes after death is sort of the engine of the story. Um, And he has a Chinese Chippendale library that's got a pipe organ in it. So how can you not? Love that. Um, but I, I, I find it kind of elegant in the same sort of circa 1973 way that I find, you know, Tom Ford's work for Gucci in the late 90s and early 2000s elegant. Um, but I think it, it, it's tidy ensemble cast are basically uniformly excellent uh, in their performances of the material, especially Roddy McDowell as 
a sort of stunted, psychic, twisted nerve. Um, and as I said to Eric earlier today, Pamela Franklin in her sort of ecclesiastical couture looks like Margaret White by way of Carnaby Street. Um, but, you know, again, it's an English made, English set and mostly English acted picture, um, with the exception of our gal Gale, who was Texas born, but maybe the most English of all of the characters in it. Um, so, of course, I mean, I expect good acting and I think it, it kind of delivers that fairly consistently. Um, I think each of the characters is unique and complex and has a, a set of character-driven motivations for why he or she is present in the story. Uh, ben, Roddy McDowell's character, is such a Cassandra in the Greekest sense. Um, he fully understands what's going on, what's going to happen, how it will ultimately play out. But of course, he's not heeded um, and has a seizure in a Fortuny velvet chair. Um, and it has atmosphere atmosphere everywhere no pun intended i promise but it is drenched in atmosphere and fog and obfuscation and that fog is so dense it could be a william castle flick shot with a fog machine in a studio it's got fog like the further in insidious um and of course the physical design of the production whose exteriors are all real, but whose interiors, with um, the exception of Blenheim Palace, where that meeting with Deutsch was shot, um, you know, it, they're, they're filled with leering satyrs in the statuary and just billowing sails of cobwebs and dust boats like tumbleweed. Um, and they, they were all built at uh, Elstree Studios. Um, and uh, Mr. Winnick, while the house's um, sobriquet? Can I say that? Can a house have a sobriquet? Um, well, if Little Edie had a sobriquet. If Little Edie had a sobriquet. This, this film can too. Uh, so, you know, the, the name of the house is the actual title of the film. I would not describe the house as a character in the film. Oh, um, okay. But Thanks I think for setting us straight on that. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, but I, I, I think the the kind of sense of foreboding that it, it, it instills and the building tension that's palpable from the start, uh, you know, all of this is, is aided and enhanced and lifted by the gooby percussive score. Um, and I, I love this film because I love the intersection of sort of hard reality and horror especially the supernatural. Um, and like in The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which we covered with David Grimm last season, where you know law and the judicial system rub against demonic possession, um, or in The Legend of Hell House, where science and technology are the sort of implements of the exploration of terror. Um, and I think it's a thoughtful film and it's quiet, except when it isn't. Um, and, you know, after about 15 minutes of pretty focused exposition, mostly delivered by young, <laughs> nubile, young Roderick McDowell, um, the, the ghosts and the film start punching pretty hard and pretty fast. Um, and, uh, you know, it's about 30 minutes in that things get really explosive. 
Um, and I also think that, you know, sort of the, the use of strong language and unsettling sexuality must have been pretty shocking for the time that it was made. Um, and, you know, blood, the few times we see it in The Legend of Hell House, looks real. Um, you know, it's it's not the Kensington gore that we we should expect to see in films from this period. It, it's it's brown, black, crimson, brick red blood like we would see in real life. Um, and you know, I think when when Doctor Barrett fires the dynamos, um, because the film has been again, and I, I qualify this statement because I'm fully aware that we're watching a, a horror film albeit one written by a masterful horror writer, um, because the film has been sort of so realistic up to that point, um, sometimes almost looking and feeling a little bit like documentary verite, I think we, or I, want to trust what I think is the resolution. But, um, you know, as, as Annie Lennox tells us in the Eurythmic song, I've Got a Life, it ain't over. Um, and, and the house is a giant battery, Dr. Barrett says. But culturally, the film, I think like the machine in it, is more of a capacitor than it is a battery. Um, because you can see and feel the influences going into it and coming out of it. And there are very striking similarities to um, The Haunting of Hill House by you know, our girl Cheryl um, and to the, the Haunting both the black and white Julie Harris, Claire Bloom adaptation from 10 years prior, and also the remake with Lily Taylor and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, you know, there, there are similarities to things like 13 ghosts on either side and um, to the quiet ones with Jared Harris from 2014, or even um, to, to both poltergeists, uh, the remake of which also featured Harris as a psychical researcher. Um, and even things like Ghost Watch. Do you guys know Ghost Watch from 1992? British TV no. show? It was a, a British, it was aired on TV in England. Yeah. Um, and it apparently terrified the nation when it was presented because it was presented as a documentary and mm. it perpetrated a hoax on, on Great Britain. Um, but, you know, I think it, it takes its impulses and it configures them into its own unique and eminently watchable thing. And that's why I appreciate it the way I do. Oh, hey, would you look at that? It's the fire drill. Woohoo! Whatever else you do, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen this film, stop listening now, go watch it, or suffer the consequences. That's right, because it is time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments on a roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. But before we get into it, I have to ask you all to establish where we are on the playing field, just a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Chris? Uh, I would say yes. All right. Eric? No. Son of a bitch. All right, let's get into it. We're going to do honor roll first, and uh, we will do this round robin style. Um, we will each name three scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. 
and then we're going to hand out detention slips. So Chris, as our guest, why don't you go first? What is your first nomination for the honor roll? Um, I, I, uh, I liked what you, you had to say, uh, about the atmosphere of the movie. And I, I feel like probably most of my honor roll picks have to do with atmosphere. The one that, that stood out to me the most is, uh, the, uh, shadows, uh, of, uh, you know, they're, they're in the bedroom and I'm terrible with characters names. So. Uh, the physicist's wife is what I'm going to call her. She's uh, she's looking around Anne. the room. Yeah. It's Anne. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. She yeah. She can't sleep, and uh, she sees uh, a, a, a little statue or a sculpture, uh, the shadow on the wall, and the shadow begins to have sex. Uh, a man and a woman have sex in the shadow, mm-hmm. and it's incredibly theatrical. It's very primal. It's simple. Uh, you know, it's done through through light and shadow, and it just evoked something genuinely scary and uncanny and intimate. Uh, and I thought it was uh, one of the highlights uh, of the movie for me. A, a small moment of detail, but incredible impact. Love it, great. I love when 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 our guests pick out those kinds of details. Kudos. Um, all right, Mr. Winnick, give us an honor roll. Yeah, I'm just going to do a blanket honor roll for the technical elements of this film. Production design, costumes, and cinematography, all terrific here. There are Dutch angles almost from the get-go. These crazy push-ins and fog and a black cat roaming the grounds. And everything just looks great in this film. Um, The house is absolutely as it should be it's just shabby chic all the way the costumes are perfect especially florence's bizarre dress jewelry combinations i mean she's no countess bathory in daughters of darkness as you pointed (laughs) out uh but however that said i did think pamela franklin looked a little bit like ilona from that movie Mm -hmm. um but really uh As the not sexist at all New York Times critic pointed out, she was there to be served up on a platter to Daniel Belasco, and she looked uh, like a a, a tasty morsel indeed. All right. Okay. And and you, sir? Um, Well, you know, I guess uh, just sort of piggybacking on on what the the two of you have said, I think the simplicity and the effectiveness of the special effects – um, especially in moments like the Florence ectoplasm seance, uh, mm. and especially the Tuesday, December 21st at 6.21 p.m. supper scene where literally all hell breaks loose. Um, you know, I, I think that they're they're particularly effective, well-executed, and honestly, quite frightening. Yeah, you know, Bradford, I had a quick question about the ectoplasm. Do you think that when uh, Daniel and... Uh, Florence have sex. Uh, you might say he slimed her. I refuse to answer that question. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Uh, should we um, throw it back so, to Chris? Yeah, let's yeah, throw it back yeah. to Chris. Number uh, two. Christopher Shin, give us your second honor roll nomination. Well, number two might be quite personal to me because I, I, I did go and read some reviews and and things after I watched the movie and I saw this was uh, 
commonly pointed out as a one of the movie's weak points, but for me, it, it does make the honor roll. Uh, the scene where the cat attacks the uh, mental medium, <laughs> I thought was genuinely terrifying. Now, you should know that one of my recurring nightmares is of a cat, often a cat that I've had, uh, attacking me, digging its claws into me, biting me, and and refusing to let go. And, you know, the, the, the nightmares are particularly horrifying because, you know, I, I've loved every cat that I've had. And in the dreams, the only way to get the cat off me is to essentially to kill it. And um, so that scene, now I know why people don't like it. You can tell when the cat is real and you can tell when it's a, a dummy, uh, when it's just a bit of taxidermy. But that didn't bother me because I felt like the the way it was edited, the intensity of the cat and its reflexes and its attack, when it was a real cat on screen, mm-hmm. I carried over that real cat when mm-hmm. it was just the dummy. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. uh, Bradford, as you were saying, the aftermath uh, of that scene, you know, her wounds look really real. Mm-hmm. And so they evoked for me, you know, if you've ever had a cat scratch you bad, it really evoked that. So for me, there was just an intensity to that sequence that uh, that, that really paid off. Well, Mr. Shin, I must tell you, we need to hang out more because the the scariest dreams that I've ever had involve like weasels ripping my flesh. Oh, um, Jesus you know, Christ. I mean, I oh my God, Eric, you know, I, I rarely have nightmares, you know, and, and if I do, I usually kind of enjoy them. But I, I remember having a nightmare where I was locked in the back of a cable van in my parents' driveway. Uh, and I was just being eaten alive by weasels that were running around in the back of this cable van and I could not get them to stop. It was terrifying. I don't um, even know where to go with that, but uh, you it's know. Like, it's like the title of a Frank Zappa album, you know? <laughs> weasels tore my flesh, Rip. yes. Yes, exactly. Um, all right, Mr. Winnick, uh, is it your turn? Do you have a second I, honor I, roll nomination? I, I think it is. Um, and I'm not sure this really is honor roll, but I'm going to stick it in here because I think it's interesting. Um, there was a sense that I had early on that the only ones who are going to really figure out what was going on here with the mediums, uh, Tanner and Fisher. And, you know, Barrett has to be wrong because he's he's Peter Venkman, right? I mean, he's he's the one who doesn't believe anything. Poor Anne is just along for the ride. But this is a haunted house movie. So science can't possibly provide the answer here, right? But I did like how the film turned the tables and actually, it's it's like a mix of electromagnetic energy and the power of love that saved the day. It's, as you put it so well earlier, it's Florence and the machine. Um, it's, it's almost a letdown when we learn this ridiculous box did have some use after all. And I have to say, I, I didn't see the film going in that direction. Mm-hmm. And you, sir? Numero dos. Um, yes. I think I'm going to give it to sweaty, repressed Anne Barrett seducing Roddy McDowell after seducing a nude bronze caryatid 
uh, on the Newell post. Um, it's sort of like the secrets that you keep walking in your sleep. Um, yep. I yep. also have to give a shout out to a tiny detail uh, that kind of brings about an sort of erotic reverie, which is the spine of the book Autoerotic Phenomena by yeah. K. Menzies. As in the the goat of? Might as well be. Yeah, Marcus mm-hmm. Welby. Marcus Welby. <laughs> um, okay, okay. The goat right. of Menzies. The goat uh, of Menzies. Chris, do, um, you, do you know... Um, uh, oh, God, Eric, what's the name of the film? Devil Rides uh, Out. The Devil Rides Out. Do you know that one? No. Oh, it's That's so Another good. one another for you. Another great Hammer film. Like Christopher the Lee. Best, the best Hammer film of all time. Charles Gray, Christopher Lee. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Also from a story by Matheson. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to Christopher Shin's third honor roll. Is that where we are? That's where we are. All right. Uh, I'm, I, I'm happy to give a number three, but I just uh, think it's worth noting that that book is a real book. I, I looked it up. <laughs> of course um, it is. The full title is Autoerotic Phenomena in Adolescence, an analytical study of the psychology and psychopathology of onanism. Oh, wow. So, wow. You know, if we had really prepared, we could have also also read ah, that book. Thank you for having done that. I meant to Google it today to see if it was legit, and I did not get around to it. So I am so appreciative of the fact that you did. Thank you. Only one rating on Amazon, uh, but it is four stars. So, um, uh, is it available in paperback now? Is it available <laughs> on Kindle? <laughs> uh, you know, th- this is a this is another sort of small moment, but I, I think it. Uh, I, I'm I'm choosing it because it had a real impact. Doctor Barrett, that's the name of the physicist. Yes. Yes. When his teacup explodes as a sort of prelude to the the poltergeist in the in, you know, at the dining table and all hell breaking loose there. Um, I mean, maybe it's just that we don't see that many practical effects anymore, but to see a practical effect that was that jarring and real Mm -hmm. and, you know, it then leads into these other, these other things coming flying at him and including a glass that it just, it looked really real to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a, a, a big problem I have in these kind of possession poltergeist movies today is that, when that stuff starts to happen, it looks really fake. It feels fake in some way. Mm. And this just felt real. The objects felt real and they felt out of control and like something else was, you know, was manifesting you know, in, in, in this kind of violence. So I just, I was really, I was like genuinely scared. And, and for that reason, uh, it made the honor roll. I could not agree with you more. And, you know, also it allowed Clive Revel to indulge in his obvious predilection for band-aids, which he wears throughout the course of the film. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I love that. Um, Eric, do you have a third? I really don't have a third, sir. Um, I'll just, I'll just throw this in um, for the hell of it. I like the opening title card. Uh, we referred to it at the beginning of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Kind of a cute fake out. Um, Tom Corbett, psychic to European royalty, is actually listed at the end of the film as the technical advisor. He's he's real too. 
What did you I, find out? I found, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I found an article about a TV program that was shown in England, I think in the, in the 60s maybe, and he was the, you know, this little documentary uh, of, of people going around, I think to old, old mansions, uh, trying to find uh, evidence of ghosts. And he was the, he was the psychic. So he's a real, he's a real guy. Oh. And uh, yeah, do some more Googling. You'll, you'll, you'll find it. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Clearly he lent his name to this film to give it some verisimilitude. Um, we can talk about the sort of docudrama aspects later, but I, I I was convinced that the, that that they had literally just taken the name of the technical consultant, but I guess it was the real guy, Tom Corbett, who worked with John Hoff on this film. Little known fact: Tom Corbett's drag name was actually Vera Similitude. <laughs> okay, what do you got for us, number three? My honor roll nomination number three is for the possessed voice of Pamela Franklin. Oh. I think it's really subtle. I think it's really simple. And uh, I think it's incredibly effective. I think more films, more possession films should take a page out of this one's book with regard to to the... um, the host of an outside entity and how it ought to sound. I think in the absence of Mercedes McCambridge and a I dozen just, raw eggs, and I was no just going to say, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's incredible. I think it's, um, you know, do, it, there's, do you think no, it was Pamela Franklin's voice slowed down? I think it is absolutely Pamela's voice slowed down. Okay. That's what I thought too. Detention after school. Both of you, you'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Now, as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what this film deserves, the dreaded detention slips. Uh, Again, Chris, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? So there are uh, title cards uh, that announce the date and the time throughout the movie. And I I think there's probably 20 of them. I mean, it's... (laughs) At least... At least. Uh, and, you know, at first I thought, oh, okay, the, the movie's trying to tell us, uh, you know, there, there's something about time and space that we need to attend to. There's a dialectic between, you know, material reality and the paranormal, the other world. But then I just thought, oh, okay, it, it is happening so gratuitously, so promiscuously <laughs> that clearly they just are having trouble structuring the movie and th- this is an attempt to make it feel like it, it has a structure, which it may not really have. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it may have been effective in terms of making you think there's a structure that is coherent, but um, it still goes into detention for me because it, uh, yeah, it, it's a cheap way, I think, of trying to lend some structure to the script. And probably some realism, too, you know? Uh, yes. but, but it doesn't it doesn't do that for us. It's unnecessary. 
Um, all right, Mr. Winnick, uh, I'm sure you have a litany of these. So why don't no, you start well, us off with your first? I, I wouldn't say a litany, but I'm going to just, I'm just going to piggyback on what Chris said because I also felt that the continual use of time stamping was insistent. It was numbing. It was way too frequent. Um, despite the use of the title card in the beginning of the film, the whole docudrama thing just it doesn't really work in a film like this that's so inherently dramatic. Uh, I, I mean, you can't say that there's really any drag queen verisimilitude in a film in which a spirit makes love to a young woman. And yet it doubles down on the whole, this happened at this time conceit way too much. And I know found footage wasn't a thing in 1973, but if you're going to commit to that approach, really commit to it. And I just felt this was somewhere betwixt and between. And I mean, I do feel somewhat like the, um, the docu style of it um, is very sort of inconsistent. It kind of goes away very quickly. Yeah. comes back a couple of times. Um, also, um, some unusual shifting POV shots that are, um, again, I mean, they're, they're uh, so infrequent as to stand out in a kind of sore thumb way. So, yeah, I, I can see that. I think for my first detention slip, um, it, it's it's not for LaBelle's gambit, but it's for Belasco's <laughs> motivation. Oh um, you know, he was apparently a shoddy who evidently really liked to party, um, but it seems a little bit silly. Um, you know, it's sort of explained really kind of beautifully in um, Florence's mediumistic trance, like 20 minutes into the film. Um, and and it's, it's more vague and there's kind of a, an eloquence uh, imparted to the telling of it that it really doesn't deserve. Um, you know, she's saying things like extremes, limits, terminations and extremities. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, it just at the end, ultimately, it's like all of this is happening because this guy had a complex about uh, how, how short he was. Um, <laughs> and then ultimately, at the end of the film, those those legs are made of plastic, which to me doesn't feel period appropriate. You know, I mean, like if, if that is going to be the motivation for all of this, like they should be fabulous wood and leather things, you know? Um, so that's, that's my first detention slip. Hmm. Let's toss it back to Mr. Shin. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we have to talk about those prosthetic legs and the ending of the movie uh, at some point, because I, uh, am an amputee for my cancer treatment about a decade ago, and I have a prosthetic leg. And to to have the end of the movie be the revelation of uh, that this guy uh, amputated his own legs in order to wear prosthetic legs that would make him taller that was uh, that was real niche. Uh, I was just not I was not prepared for such a niche ending that related so much to my own life. So we, we'll have to get it. We'll have to get into that. All right. Um, uh, but, um, you know, here's my number two. I, uh, and it, it links a little bit to the timestamps. Uh, you know, so here we have a movie where there's a married couple and then there's these two mediums. So there's four people in the house and, you know, we see them at different times during the day, but I never had a sense 
of what the hell they were doing in the house most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a meal just sort of appears, uh, you know, they sort of gather at different times, you know, they do, you know, they, they do some seances or, you know, whatever you call when the, the medium. Sittings, I think they call the, them in the film. Sittings. Yeah. Um, but I was just like, boy, this movie could really be improved if I just knew more what they were doing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, during the day, you know, when they're not actively investigating uh, the paranormal. So I felt like it was a real weakness of the movie that we didn't get to know the characters in a more relaxed or casual uh, setting ever. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought it, it would have been fun to learn a, a bit more about them and just sort of see them more in a normal uh, in a normal setting. I mean, one of the great strengths of uh, a movie like the original Poltergeist is you you get a sense of the actual lives of the people. And so when it, it moves into, you know, the full, the full poltergeist experience, you, you sort of have that context. So I felt like the movie sort of kept me at a certain remove from the characters as human beings. All right. I'm, I'm glad you brought up poltergeist in that context. Um, uh, you know, and I mean, I think that uh, Roddy's um, Tangina Barron's this house is clean moment uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, was was very clearly an antecedent um, to to what would come later from Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg. Um, Eric, I'm sure you've got a, a, another detention slip to hand out. You want to give us I, number? Why two? Would, Why would you think that, sir? Um, I, I, just a feeling that I get. Just Just a gut feeling. Uh, so So this film has a kind of a weird way of delving into backstory. Uh, it gives us these hints, and then it kind of leaves them. Uh, much of the way it kills off two of the characters and then just kind of leaves them. Um, <laughs> you know, much as, as it, the film kind of just ends with Fisher and Anne leaving, and then the credits pop up and that's it. Um, we learn that there are these insane, sadistic, orgiastic revels in the house, that there was vice and bestiality and all manner of craziness. And you keep oh, thinking, Eric, well... They- they were all godless here. They were. Uh, thank Brazen, you. lolling creatures in their silks and satins. Thank you, Anna Massey. Um, mm-hmm. And you keep thinking, well, these folks are in for a rude awakening. Uh, but the way the scares play out, they almost feel like they have nothing to do with that. I mean, yes, Anne comes down and offers herself to, to Fisher. And you have the scene with... Florence and Daniel uh, getting it on, but it's a far, far, far cry from what we should be seeing. And, and, and I know they tone this down from Matheson's book. I know that they, they wanted the PG rating, Mm -hmm. Um, but even in 1973, I thought they could have taken more chances than this. And I, and, and I felt that that denuded the film of some of its potential power, so to speak. All right, so uh, is it is it my turn? Yeah. Do I get to give my second, second detention, detention slip? Yes, you All do. Right. Um, I'm gonna say the mystery of the letter B in Florence's blood on the cross. <laughs> yeah. Roddy McDowell knows where he is. He has been to that house before. He is there now. The name Belasco has been spoken at least 100 times in the 93 minutes of the film. What does he think? 
Does he think she's grading her experience of being bonked <laughs> to death by a falling crucifix? Um, and it, it still takes him a full minute of screen time trying to puzzle it out. And we're watching those gears turn. Yeah. And also, don't get me started on the but what is the key moment where we cut immediately to Lionel's legs sticking out from under the shandy like he's the fucking Wicked Witch of the East. Um, I love this movie, but the last seven minutes or so really let me down. And I mean, it, it's, you know, you may have picked up on this because my two detention slips so far have taken place in the last, you know, five to seven minutes of the film um, where Belasco is, is revealed that, you know, he's murdered all of these uh, people and continues to um, have a, an impact on, uh, on reality, even, you know, decades or a century after his death or whatever, because he was sh too short Roddy can't figure out what the letter B is. I mean, it's just, it feels a little sloppy, a little lazy. And I mean, talk about like telegraphing, telescoping, whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, uh, you know, all of these things that we should know already that, that have been imparted to us in some way throughout the, uh, you know, preceding 89 minutes of the film. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm a little disappointed by how they bring it on home. You know what I'm disappointed by, Bradford? I'm I'm disappointed that there hasn't been a Chekhov's you fill in the blank here yet in this episode. I mean, has, is there? I don't know. I mean, I, I was thinking you were going to say Chekhov's poorly nailed in crucifix, perhaps. I don't well, I, I don't I, know. Or, or like Chekhov's lurking black cat, you know, that we see at the beginning. I, I guess. I yeah. There, I don't there's, know. There's not a there, whole lot of Chekhovian. We should, we uh, should probably tell Chris that there is a Chekhov's something, something in every in film every we episode. watch. Yeah. Yeah. If we just, and I'm shocked that Bradford hasn't figured out what it is in this, but uh, maybe, maybe he will before the end of the episode. Um, let's take it back to Chris's third detention slip. Chris, what do you have well, for us? My number three is a kind of a Chekhov's fill in the blank. Oh, I'd say. here we go. All right. Let's do it. Let's say uh, it is Chekhov's dialectic. I thought there's a dialectic set up early in the movie about the paranormal. And you have a physicist who's working, you know, from a, a sense of science and material reality. And then you have these two mediums. And there are some clashes early on. You know, where, where to me, I thought, okay, this movie is going to be exploring what is the paranormal? Is it something right. that is mm -hmm. really uh, of another world, uh, some aspect of consciousness that cannot be accounted for by some the laws of science? Philosophical, yeah, of course. I, I thought we were really going to get into it. I thought it was really, it was really setting us up for uh, a sort of philosophical subplot. And it just, it just didn't ever really pay off for me. I think you're right, Eric. We were talking earlier about how the sort of crazy machine the physicist has, there, there's an attempt to sort of unite the two points of view at the end of the movie. But, you know, look, I think this question of what a ghost is, what a, you know, what a haunting is, is a fascinating, rich, dramatic question. And I really wanted the movie to not just be, it becomes a sort of mystery of what what's causing the haunting. 
but I, I really thought it was going to expand into a sort of philosophical exploration of reality itself, what we know about mm. it in the material mm-hmm. world and what we don't know about it in the beyond. And it just didn't, it didn't go to the level I was hoping and expecting from the first third of the movie. I mean, about as deep as the philosophy gets is stay out of the chapel, Team Hellhouse. You know? <laughs> yeah. Not that anyone should ever step into a church for any reason other than architectural appreciation, but I mean, really, stay out of the chapel, you know? Unless there's Scooby Snacks in there. Unless there are Scooby Snacks. Eric, number three. So... The idea here is that Emmerich Belasco is doing these terrible things to people because of his bruised ego for being short. That's why the various scientists and mediums who'd been to the house before were ending up paralyzed or and insane re- and in- or insane. And the reason he had his own legs removed so he could be taller and somehow he shut himself up inside a lead room with a brandy snifter in one hand uh, there's just something a little anticlimactic about that wrap up. So I guess I, I'm with you, Bradford and Chris. Th- there's just something that just feels like it's just the rug gets pulled out from under the film. And it's kind of like, really, this is how you're going to end it. And, and I mean, to Chris's point, instead of ending big and making some great statement, it ends really small yeah. and, and kind of insignificant. So that brings us to your third detention slip, sir. And uh, I'm curious as to where you're going to go with this. I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to have to disagree with something that Mr. Shin said earlier. Oh no. Um, I, I think that your description of the false cat as taxidermy is probably a little generous. (laughs) (laughs) Because... (laughs) The outrageous and I would say borderline offensive artifice of the dead cat in the shower in Florence's ensuite kind of just took me out of the whole thing. There's that clever shadow work that leads into it. And it just makes it makes the dead cat look that much shittier. It's really a shitty looking dead cat. And you know, it's it's better utilized in the the fight scene with Flo, but uh that floating in the water in the shower in a puddle of blood, it was just there needed to be like a sad trombone accompaniment. <laughs> um so before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. Get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, maybe have a snack or two. Uh, Chris, uh, growing up, did you have a favorite school time snack? You know, I I feel like eating and food was such a like like primary part of my childhood, and I loved mm. eating. And and so the fact that I can't think of like what a favorite school snack was. It makes me feel like there's some must there's some trauma or something <laughs> because I'm like I must have had snacks and yet I can't really remember. So I'm gonna I don't remember having snacks at school, but I'll say that I'll just tell you what my favorite snack was in general from that period of my life. Yeah, uh, it was probably combos. You know, the the cracker with the little cheese or the pretzel with a little cheese inside. Mm-hmm. Those I thought were uh, the the height of. Uh, culinary sophistication and 
<laughs> really, really delicious. You're not the first. What, what was your favorite variety? You know, they had like a pizza one. Yeah, um, they did. Well, yeah, that was my favorite. That the the tangy, the the, oh. the cheese and the pizza one was so tangy, and so I good. just thought it was amazing. Uh, well, then let's take a break, and we will come back for the superlatives. everyone's concerned you're the most popular girl in your school and the fact that you hang with d and i well speaks very highly of you well he's very popular Ed. cools nerds your side my side man it's all bullshit it's just tough enough to be yourself so is this your first time out here yeah i don't think i'm very popular out here either hey i met you you are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed only with us, it's things like character that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do that first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for the director of such films, such uh, family fare as uh, Irreversible, Love 3D, Lux Eterna, Enter the Void, and Climax, uh, all of which you should just bring your kids to immediately because it's nothing but family fun. Oh, um, Lux Eterna. Don't get Lux me started Eterna. about Lux Eterna. Lux, uh, Lux and Bagels Eterna. I mean, starring um, our starring friend of the podcast, Beatrice Dahl. And uh, Bradford, would you would you start us off for the most disturbing scene? Oh, it's so hard. I've got two contenders, but I think I'm going to give it to Anne Barrett's seduction of Ben Fisher. I find Ooh. it sort of queasy uncomfortable on about 14 levels. Uh, and of course, it involves the one character in this film who shouldn't be there. So Gail Hunnicutt and Roderick McDowell get my Gaspar Noe Award for the most disturbing scene. All right. Very good. Well, I will follow that up with... Um... Not that scene, but uh, the other scene that I've referred to several times now, uh, Florence's Midnight Rendezvous with the spirit of Daniel Belasco. Uh, yes. I mean, she she clearly thinks she's helping the situation by giving her body over to him. But the scene just still has a real ick factor to it, especially when like she gets in bed naked and the covers, you know, come flying back. And it's just like, oh, this can't end well. Um, so yeah, Chris, spoiler uh, alert, it doesn't spoiler alert. It doesn't, uh, Chris, what do you, what do you have for the Gaspar Noe award for most disturbing scene? I just got to go back to my, my cat there. I'm keeping it, keeping it personal. It was the most personally disturbing to me. So that gets my vote. The cat attack. Okay. Love it. Okay. Uh, which brings us to our next award. That's the Ellen Ripley award for character that most deserve to live. Uh, and as we do sometimes, uh, we can give this to a character who lived or died. Uh, this is the character, however, that most deserved to live, um, named for Ellen Ripley, the uh, survivor of the doomed Nostromo uh, aboard Ridley Scott's 1979 Alien. 
Bradford, why don't you start us off once again? Who gets your Ellen Ripley Award? Florence. Easy. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It, you, you really, I mean, because you liked that character or? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I thought she was, um, yeah, yeah. I, I have literally nothing to say about it. Florence is uh, the recipient of my Ellen Ripley Award tonight. All right. Very good. Uh, yeah. Chris, uh, a character that most deserved to live? Uh, I'm I'm with Bradford Florence. Uh, I thought she she had a, an open heart. Uh, she had a a, a very warm, uh, naive uh, orientation to the world. I found very touching, and uh, I, I definitely wanted her to live. Interesting. Right. Uh, yeah, I I actually found her. I actually did not like her character at all. I found her a little shrill and. Uh, uh, bratty at times uh so i'm giving the ellen ripley award to the cat um this beautiful black cat that socks the grounds and at one point just gets flung around like a chicken on yom kippur (laughs) all right well done which brings us to the michael myers award for character that most deserved to die uh and uh, as we sometimes do, we turn it over to our guests. Who in the horror canon, Christian, was Michael Myers? Um, you know, there's so many of these movies now. They're all kind of glommed together in my yeah. head. I mean, I think the, the uh, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't ever criticize anybody who's still alive and making movies. But I mean, the, those reboots, uh, the David Gordon Green. Yeah. Uh, they were just terrible. I mean, I thought. Mm. And uh and they're the most recent in my mind. Uh, and, and I feel like the reboot before that was very different, but kind of better and darker in a, you know, in a way that connected. The Rob um, Zombie remakes? The Rob, the Rob Zombie uh, stuff. I mean, not that I think it's so great, but, but I thought it was at least had a little more uh, passionate and uh, idiosyncratic they're also glommed into one kind of amorphous thing now that I feel it's hard for me to talk about Michael Myers, uh, as a, as a character, but, um, certainly it's, it's one of the, the most frightening, uh, faces in, in any horror movie ever. Let's, uh, have you start us off though, Chris, for the Michael Myers award for this film character that most deserved to die. Who do you have? Uh, I think I have the obvious answer, but Dr. Lionel Barrett, the physicist, uh, huh. he's, yeah. he's a real, real arrogant guy. And I know, you know, he's one of those guys who throughout the movie, he, uh, will, will say something and he's already made up his mind to leave the room. So, yeah. you know, he, yeah. you know, he's often, you know, challenging somebody or criticizing, criticizing somebody. And he sort of has his, his exit line and he's already moving. Um, you know, which I think is always a real, a real great way to, uh, to signify that, that somebody is unsympathetic when they, they don't even stick around for you to respond to them. So, uh, for that reason, among others, he gets my, uh, my Michael Myers award. Yes. Right. Uh, Mr. Mr. Lorick, what do you have for this? Well, I would say Belasco, if he didn't sound like such a good time, you know, because who doesn't <laughs> yeah. appreciate the company of a perverted millionaire? But um, I am right there with Mr. Shin. I think Dr. Lionel Barrett gets this award from me tonight. And, you know, I I also think it might be less a criticism of the character or the film than it is the time in which it was made. But um, Barrett's attitude toward 
women, specifically his poor wife, Anne, and his being so dismissive of Florence, it feels quite misogynistic and it does not hold up particularly well from our contemporary point of view. Uh, I agree with you both. Uh, I, I, it's, it's Barrett for me. Yay! He seems like such an asshole. And, and uh, as, as you pointed out, he, he does hit Florence that, 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 that doesn't hold up particularly well. Um, which brings us to the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. My uh, favorite award of the night. Your favorite award because Ken Russell, of course, was the director of what film, Bradford? Whore. Whore. Take the money. Whore. Take yeah. the money. Uh, yes. Uh, and that other is the things only- like Salome's Last Dance and Layer of the White Worm. The Devil's Altered oh, States, Tommy, Lishtamania, um, Crimes the, of the, Passion. The, the list goes on and on. Baroque screen moment. Uh, I'll, I'll start us off with this one. Um, right. s- sadly, I, I'm going to take uh, Mr. Shin's most disturbing scene and and put this as my most Baroque scene. It is the cat scene. Uh, another film in which someone is attacked by cats. Uh, also, let the right one in, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't work well here either, uh, because you know she's just flinging a puppet around, and uh, you know I, I understand what you were saying, Chris, about the cuts to the real cat, and then back to her, sort of you know wrestling with with the doll. Um, to me, it's just it just it didn't work. It took me out of it. Uh, it was over the top, and that is why, it, for me, it is the most Baroque screen moment. Uh, Bradford Lorick, what do you have? Oh, I think it is definitely that um, Tuesday, December 21st at 6.21 p.m. supper scene. Uh, you know, we've got uh, flying, spiked carving boards. We've got a fireball erupting from the fireplace as if it were mm. Zane Busby's mouth in National Lampoon's class reunion. Um <laughs> I I mean, it's just, you know, it it just continues to sort of get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's fire and and things flying around. Brimstone. Yes, absolutely. Treacle. and All hell breaks loose. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, Very good. Uh, Baroque screen moment. Uh, Christian, what do you have? You know, I was going to say that that dinner scene that that Bradford chose, but I'll just, I'll add a little uh, diversity here and say that something about Fisher, the end of the movie in the chapel, uh, you know, oh, where, where the, the spirits are swirling about, he's being uh, f- flung to and fro while he's screaming that uh, the, the, the spirit in the house uh, uh, was 5-2. And then, <laughs> yes. He's screaming, yes. you know, 5-1. You know, he starts going down an inch. I mean... <laughs> There's just there's something really crazy and extreme about that. So that that gets gets my vote. Anybody got four nine, you know, that is an excellent segue into the Brad Dourif award for character that could or should have been played by Brad Dourif. Our patron saint, uh, of course, best known. What is he best known for, Bradford? That would be James Veneman, the Gemini Gemini killer in The the Exorcist 3. As well as the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play franchise. Of course. Uh, 
Wise Blood, John Huston's Wise Blood, Billy Bibbit, uh, Oscar-nominated performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Deadwood, uh, as well as uh, many, many other films. Lynch's Dune. others. Lynch's Dune, Lynch's Blue Velvet. Um, Chris, do you want to start us off? Do you do you have a sense of who Brad Dorff could or should have played in this film? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is Fisher, uh, the Roddy McDowell character, but I thought, you know, if you were rebooting this movie, yeah. you, you could make Belasco a real character. Yeah. And Brad Dorif would be uh, an absolutely incredible Belasco. He absolutely would. You wouldn't have to embalm him. Uh, you could just let him <laughs> wind him up and watch him go. Uh, very good. So Belasco. Uh, Bradford, what do you have for Brad Dorif Award? Uh, you know, Chris, I am, in, in fact... I think that he would have been great in the Ben Fisher role. Um, you know, I think it's a sort of unusually sort of sensitive uh, role for someone like Brad Dourif, but I would really like to see what he would do with it. Yes, and and I have to follow that up because um, the the scene that Chris just referred to in his Ken Russell Award is the scene that made me think that, wow, uh, if only Brad Dourif had played Ben Fisher, uh, especially in the scene where uh, Roddy McDowell is dialing it up to 11 and starts taunting the spirit of Emmerich Belasco by calling his mother, uh, wh- what does she call him, Bradford? A whore. A that, whore. Which, yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, with that, we have arrived at the final segment of the night, the final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything that we've seen and heard about this film. Um, Chris, would you like to go first and give us a final letter grade for The Legend of Hell House? I think we're going with a solid B. All right. Mr. Winnick? Uh, Solid would be the word, uh, although for me, it would be a C. No way. Yes way. <sighs> All right. <clears throat> um, uh, I'm going to give it a B plus. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode and if you do or if you did tell your friends share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet have a listening party bring some combos especially the pizza kind and hey maybe even subscribe or better yet Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so we'll be easier for others to track down. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareyoupod.com. Thanks again to our very special guest, uh, Mr. Christopher Shin. Chris, if um, people want to find you or your work online, where can they do so? I guess by this point in 2023, I have deactivated all uh, those demonic social media accounts and uh, people will have to go to my website, uh, ChristopherShin.co. You can find me there and uh, yeah, and that's where you'll, you'll get the latest. And uh, if you want to know what's going on Uh, now, Chris, is there anything you want to plug or uh, talk about that's coming up? 
Uh, anything that you can talk about, shall we say? We could just say um, th- there's things cooking. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I am happy to hear things are cooking. Let's just put it that way. Um, very good. Uh, meanwhile, you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker EA Winnick. And of course, you can find me at my website, Autoerotic Phenomena by kmenzies.com. Uh, or at bradfordlorick.com. Um, our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. And our theme music is by Edward Elger and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time in that dusty old chapel with the precarious crucifix that we like to call... Lights or sounds, shaking of the house, coming through closed doors, rushing winds... Levitations, automatic writings, or the speaking in tongues!